Even with my readers. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt, Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. The word of God for the people of God. Good morning, friends. My name is Brian, and I have the privilege of being the pastor here at Grace. Today is a day, as we are getting ready into a new year, to let go of fear. Fear that is all around us in multiple ways. So will you please pray with me and for me? Speak, Lord. Your people are listening. Inspire us greatly so that our faith in you may grow. Amen. So that Exodus story we just heard was from people who are on the road to freedom. These ancient Israelites had finally been freed from Egyptian slavery and were returning to their spiritual home to rebuild their nation. And then they get stuck. Bump in the road, you could say. A giant sea of water, the Red Sea. And fear starts to grip them as thousands of Egyptian chariots start to bear down on them. And these Israelites don't understand why this is happening. They're supposed to be freed people. Freedom is supposed to make things easier. This journey isn't supposed to be that difficult. So we have this story of people who had been brought out of slavery, but along with this newfound freedom has come confusion. They were finding that freedom isn't as easy 
as they thought it would be. All those years in slavery, they had yearned for this freedom. But now that they were on the path toward it, they were discovering that it required faith, that it required bold risk-taking. Because they had started to believe that the chains of slavery, while demeaning and painful, they were at least predictable. And they knew how to handle that predictability in their life. Rather than trust that God may be with them if they took risks and trusting something else, they wanted to go back to what they knew, even if it meant an eventual death. Friends, our church is coming to this point. It may perhaps already be there. And I know numbers aren't the most enjoyable thing, but frankly, I think we need to be aware of it because if we're not aware of reality, we can't help solve a problem. This chart, which is handed out as part of our church profile, Every year at charge conference, church conference, this page represents our attendance and membership numbers for the past 10 years. Besides some slight increases in 2014 and 18, we have been in gradual and even significant decline for 10 years. Now, part of our numbers in previous years were inflated because we are counting people who are at both services twice, and technically we're not supposed to do that, and we're not doing that anymore. So the decline may not be as great as it appears to be in some cases, but the decline itself is still there. Please hear, this is not a reflection of the quality of your faith, and certainly not a reflection of the quality of the people we have here or your faithfulness toward the church. That is not the case. But it is a symptom that we are not being as effective as we can be. And frankly, this is not going to magically get better if we are not aware of reality and are not intentional in taking significant steps toward being in relationship with our community. We may think that the world is just against us, that nobody likes the church now. It is not divine inevitability for churches to continue to decline. It is not, not, not just divine inevitability. There's nothing we can do about it, no matter what we do, for churches to continue to decline. In fact, some churches, even mainline churches, even United Methodist churches, even Michigan United Methodist churches, some are growing. And there is hope. But let me be extremely blunt. 
which is something I'm usually not very good at. That does not happen by just continuing on in the same old, same old, just keep on keeping on and expecting results to be different. There will not be another 40 years unless we change the way we do ministry. I've got to be extremely clear and blunt about that. Frankly, even another 20 would be a stretch. And I also want to be clear, in case this comes to mind, which if you're aware of a denomination it may be, I am not talking about what is going on across our global connection in convictions regarding human sexuality. Those are important, and they matter, but that's not this. This is about our willingness to be in relationship with our community and a willingness to change our methods of ministry, to take bold risks. And I'm not talking about relationships and ministry through charitable giving, as good as that may be. I'm talking about relationships with people. True, authentic relationships where people in our community know something about what Grace Church is about. And I'm not coming to you today to be negative. I'm talking about this because I believe strongly that Jesus can still use us, can still use the church to reach new people who need to experience the love of God and the way we are organizing our church isn't leading us toward that. Friends, I've seen quite a few dying churches. I have read about them. I have heard their stories. And I've been here 18 months. And I've seen and heard some of the same statements here. I have seen symptoms start to form. And they're not going to change unless we stare them in the face and say, God can do something about that through us if we're willing to change our methods. The first symptom is a slow decline. Churches that closed their doors, they didn't have some type of, usually some type of horrible catastrophic event. It is gradual decline where people just didn't notice. Understandably so. You're here every week, you're not gonna, it just starts to feel normal after time. But the decline then starts to be not just in numbers, but in spiritual life, spiritual vitality, and an outward focus of the church where more and more resources are having a desire to stay in here rather than out there. And those churches also tend to cling to the past, and not only cling to the past, see the path as its hero. Now, we're not here without some of the people 40 years ago 
who boldly took some decisions. We're not here without them, and we honor that. But if we worship, if we talk and sing like we used to, and believing that if we just go back to the way it was 40 years ago, that everything will go back to normal, doesn't mean we're not valuing the past. It means we're taking what we have learned in the past and recognizing that in order to have a future, the methods of the past are no longer an effective means to get us there. And perhaps most importantly, what I see creeping in here is a focus on member preferences instead of what God may be calling us to. More on that in a minute, though. We cannot change things if we ignore what needs to be changed or the reality. When you get sick, you don't get better by just hoping. You go to the doctor to get medicine. And even if you're sick, it doesn't mean you have to be afraid. It means you can trust that there is medicine that can help you be made well. When you have symptoms, you go to the doctor, get antibiotics to help you get better. When what we're doing is not leading us toward optimum fruit or health, you change your methods. That's what every organization besides the church seems to do. And the ancient Israelites in that Exodus story, at least for the most part, they were willing to let go of fear so that God could give them the courage to move forward. Even though Moses was told to be still and let God move, well, it's interesting because then right after that, God then tells the Israelites, get moving. And through a lot of courage and faithful risk-taking, they find spiritual renewal. Might not be what they look like or even what they believe could happen, but there was new life found. So in going toward 2020, I want to share with you what my areas of focus for me, for myself, and what I believe God is calling us as a church to, so that we can move forward and through our own Red Sea. And these are gifts. Gifts aren't always easy, aren't always without challenges, but I want to share with you what I believe you should be able to expect from me in 2020. The first one, there are three of these. First focus. I'm not going to be in the office as much anymore. The community is coming before the office. You've given me a, your pastor a really nice office space. And it is a place where I am available to meet with you all. But be, being in the office day after day is not going to create the fruit that this church needs. Folks, I'm still going to be available to you all as much as ever. But frankly, there are too many days where I am just sitting in there by myself, occasionally going out to talk with Jim Westlake about something, and Jim is great. 
Jim is not the person I was sent here to reach. In 2020, pastors take the majority of their office with them. So if you want to meet me in the office, of course I can be available to you during our normal office hours. FYI, Monday through Thursday, 9 to 1. And I will still be in here quite a bit because there are books that I do still need for sermon preparation and all that. But at least one or two days per week, I'm going to be somewhere. Big B, Mustard Seed Cafe, tell me where you think I should go. I'll check it out. I'm going to seek out the people of our community, and you are invited to meet me there. And I will gladly buy you a cup of coffee or another beverage of your choice. This is what ministry has to look like in 2020. So the second gift that we have here is what, it's one of those Methodist terms we talk about called social holiness. And all this means is that we are going to grow together with each other, not individual silos here and there, but with each other as people following Jesus. We, that we are not isolated individuals in a journey, but companions discerning where God is calling us together. Social holiness, as Methodists, we believe we're not going to grow into all God wants us to be without others. We need each other. And the ways we're going to be doing this are through things like small groups, new ways of discipleship. Don't entirely know how that will all work right now. Still discerning to figure out. But I know there will be opportunities for us to grow in deeper and more authentic relationships, not only with God, but with each other. The third gift is missional worship. This may sound very strange to you because mission is supposed to be out there. And worship is what we do for us in here. So here's what I mean when we say missional worship. What I mean is that we are going to continually be more intentional about designing worship with guests and with, for people who are not connected to a faith community as a higher focus. To put it as bluntly as I can, a church in 2020, frankly, a church in 1990, but we got by for a few years doing the same thing, a church in 2020 cannot survive long-term where members are focused on their own preferences. My music style. My desired length and order of worship service. My desired design of buildings and rooms. My activities and programs. And yes, they have found in studies even my needs of ministers and staff. That's what these studies have found. That when those preferences overtake the mission, we've lost who we are. And please hear that one of the things I told you when I arrived here is that your pastor cares about you. And none of this means that I do not care intensely about you. 
because I do care about you, all of you. In fact, most pastors probably care more than their churches realize, even if you don't like the pastor there. But what it means is that our purpose is bigger than our own individual preferences. And when our preferences get in the way of potentially having that door open for new people to connect to our faith and to be able to fall in love with the same God we came as Lord, friends, I know what the greater purpose is. And I hope you do too. I made a promise to you that every decision I would make here at Grace would be to help us achieve our mission. In the past 18 months, there have been times where I've broken that promise. I've broken that promise out of fear because I didn't want people to get upset because I don't want people to get mad and say that pastor needs to leave and have to put my family through stress. Because most pastors, including myself, like to be liked. Not always the most helpful thing. I repent of when I fall short of that. Mission is not just what we do or give money to out there. Please hear that. Mission is not out there. Mission is everything in here and all around. If everything we do as a church, and I mean every decision that's ever made in a committee based on anything, if it does not flow out of a purpose of mission, that church will not live up to its God-given potential. And in today's world, where church is no longer where all the you go to feel popular and where all the cool kids are hanging out. In today's world, not having the, letting everything flow out of a purpose of mission will almost certainly lead to decline. And every year, every month, every week, churches in our nation are closing our doors because they have lost their sense of mission. Now, some find real dignity in that and are able to give new life to other things as they depart. There are multiple avenues to bring new life in. In churches that went through the motions 30 years ago, they could still survive. That is no longer the case today. And it's not going to change. And we can... Grieve that, that can make us sad. It's not going to change that I, as the person, for whatever reason God sent here, is going to have to lead us forward. Friends, those ancient Israelites hadn't moved forward. If they hadn't moved forward, if they had just stayed there and gone back into Egyptian slavery, we lose I'm taking a guess here, about 90% of our Bible. <laughs> the story of God's people could have ended there. 
but it didn't because of courage. I believe God is inviting us to be courageous, like our spiritual ancestors this year. We don't just read that book for head knowledge. We read that book to be reminded of who God can be and that those stories are the stories giving witness to the same God still today. Keeping the status quo, keeping the same methods, that's a decision all of us are free to make. But I hope you can see that the results of those decisions should be very clear for the future. And that's not how I'm, that's not my understanding of why you asked for someone like me. That's not what I'm going to do. But I can't do it alone. You can't do it alone either. We need each other. And if we're going to fulfill all that God dreams we can, we're going to do this together and to find courage with and in each other. I need it from you. And you'll need it from me. Maybe more than you have. This will not work unless we're in it together. But together, God can give us the courage to take those steps and maybe do something that really surprises every last one of us. Amen. So we are here to tell a story tonight. As we can see, it's not always the neatest or tidiest story. It's not even really as clean as we sometimes make it out to be. And yet, it's a story that is completely saturated with hope. That even amidst the mess, there is beauty pure beauty. And as we begin to tell our story, we're going to read a portion of Holy Scripture that will help illuminate this story in a way. So please hear these words from God spoken through an ancient prophet named Isaiah. This is the ninth chapter of the book of Isaiah, verses 2 through 7. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in a pitch-dark land, light has dawned. You have made the nations great. You have increased its joy. They rejoiced before you as with joy at the harvest, as those who divide plunder rejoice. As on the day of Midian, you shattered the yoke that burdened them, the staff on their shoulders, and the rod of the oppressor. Because every boot of the thundering warriors and every garment rolled in blood will be burned, fuel for the fire, 
A child is born to us. A son is given to us. And authority will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be vast authority and endless peace for David's throne and for his kingdom. Establishing and sustaining it with justice and righteousness. Now. Now and forever. Friends, will you please pray with me and for me? Speak, Lord. You are here, and we are yearning to hear your story once again. We are people in need of hope. So may we experience your coming anew in this moment so that we can fall even more deeply in love with you, a lowly infant in a manger. Amen. So, with every breath we take, every second that ticks by, every blink of our eyelids, multiple babies are born into the world. And more than 2,000 years ago, a baby was born. And we have decided that the one we call Jesus is Lord. Why? Why was this specific baby at this specific time worthy of being called Lord? Let's think about this. That passage from Scripture, that word from Isaiah we just heard, it gives a brief snapshot into the hopes of people who thousands of years ago were under harsh rule and oppression. They were being harshly ruled over an authoritarian empire, and they were desperate, absolutely desperate for hope. They felt like darkness had closed in on them, and they were wondering if light was ever going to come. But the prophet Isaiah is telling them that light is coming. A light that is coming to build a world of justice, not just for the future, but also the present, and one that will reign forever. And now we're at an advantage here today because we're here because we know that that light has come. The light has come. And friends, that light's reign began in a manger. Friends, it's not just astonishing that God became human. It's how God 
became human. God became human in a manger. So let's talk about the manger. It was a manger that was not afraid to be dirty. It was a manger that was a last resort for a desperate couple. It was a manger that would never be sold on Etsy and wouldn't even be good enough to be donated to the Salvation Army. Friends, how can we possibly think that we are too dirty for God when God began God's human life like this? The plain and simple truth is that there is no darkness in your life, in the world, anywhere. There is no darkness that is so great that it, will, that it can keep the light from coming that it can keep that lowly baby boy away from the manger. And we can believe this because of the manger that Jesus was born into. Now, several years ago, I was visiting with my mom in Orlando, Florida, and we went to this Christian theme park there. I was supposed to represent ancient Israel and the land of Jesus' life. Well, when we came to the section, the exhibit that showed his birth, I remember seeing the manger. And there were these purple stream, streamers and other lights and bright colors surrounding it that left me wondering if Joseph and Mary must have stopped at Michael's or perhaps Hobby Lobby on their way to Bethlehem. And I want to say this as respectfully and nicely as I can. Picturing the newborn Jesus in what looks like an exploded disco ball is a bunch of fooey. The truth of the manger, it feels, it looks, dare we say, far too secular. For the birth of God. The likely screams and pains of Mary in childbirth seem far too human for God to make his way through that birth canal. The stench of farm animals being one of the first thing to hit God's nostrils feels far too unrefined. And yet, these are the very reasons we should call him Lord. We call the babe in the manger Lord because being placed in that manger makes him accessible to all. It means nobody is too low, too rejected, too marginalized, or too much of an outsider that they can't find a home with Jesus in the manger. The manger is proof God is not ashamed of lowliness. And lowliness does not mean that we think less of ourselves or that we think we're not worthy. It means that we recognize we are part of a greater story and that, that God's story began in a lowly manger. God makes a home 
in lowliness. God was nursed in lowliness. God slept in lowliness. And God cried in lowliness. The manger is the place where all of creation can find hope because in the words of 20th century preacher Dietrich Bonhoeffer, our Lord comes in the form of a beggar, of the dissolute human child in ragged clothes asking for help. He confronts you in every person that you meet. As long as there are people Christ will walk the earth as your neighbor. Bonhoeffer explains this by saying that that God became human. Really human. God did not ignore the reality of the human experience and all that comes with it. And friends, when we try to ignore our own humanity, both the light and the dark, just push it away, pretend like it doesn't have to come up, we start to look past the manger, and we don't have to. God became human, really human. And he invites us into the reality of our own humanity, too. The babe in the manger wasn't pretty. And yet, he was exactly what we needed. A poor baby, born to parents of little worth who would later have to go on the run to keep their child alive. Lying there in a feeding trough of animals. Probably crying trying to keep warm. And in that moment, that moment that looks far too human, hope has never been more alive. Friends, if the creator of the universe had his eyes fixed on this poor baby who would live in the no-name town of Nazareth. In fact, not only the no-name town, but the town that others thought that nobody, nothing good would ever come out of. If God had his eyes on that baby at that specific time in town and said that it was holy and good, friends, if God sees that, God sees you too. If God can be pleased in a man from Nazareth, God can be pleased with you too. And God loves you. Folks, you don't have to pretend to have your act together with Jesus. You don't have to look powerful and mighty. You get to get low. If the narrative that you've been told or heard is that the church is the place for the powerful, the place to showcase God's might. The baby in the manger invites us to a different story. It is the place where hope knows no boundaries. The place where hope has proclaimed that there is love for you no matter how beaten down and tired you are. The place that proclaims that the only thing that keeps us away is our own piety, expecting to find hope in being prim and proper instead of poor and downcast. 
Now, friends, perhaps you pray every day. And perhaps you've never said one prayer in your life. Perhaps it's been a long time since you have truly prayed. Because if you were to pray, you were afraid that God wouldn't hear you. Or worse, doesn't care about you. And here, it doesn't matter what your story has been. I invite you in this moment to pray with me to make these words your own, to whisper them to yourself because, friends, God is not hard of hearing. God hears your most silent cries and whispers the very beats of your heart and your yearnings. So I invite you to pray with me at this time. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for the manger. Thank you, God, for not being afraid of the lowliness of humanity. Thank you for willingly laying in a feeding trough. Now we thank you that you are still that God today and you are not afraid of coming into our own brokenness. Thank you for not being afraid to lie in the messes we have made of our lives and our world. Now free us, free us, wash us clean, make us new. We offer ourselves to you, God. Amen. Amen. Friends, God is in the manger, and that's enough. That is enough to provide hope. The hope that points us toward a new kingdom that is coming. That is enough for us to know there is no lowly nature that God will not meet us at. God is in the manger. Let's join him. And let that message of hope resound throughout all of creation and for every last one of us. Amen. Amen.